0: By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. This is the word of God.
1: Good morning. It is uh, it's good to see you. When we started the service, there were like 12 of you here. And I thought this... Maybe this is the Sunday no one shows up, but uh, it's good to see you here. And uh, we're continuing on in our sermon series, Steady On, through Hebrews, uh, made it to chapter 11. We've been in chapter 11 the last uh, number of weeks. We're going to continue on through chapter 11. And we've been seeing throughout chapter 11, really through the whole uh, book of Hebrews, we've been seeing the connection between faith and obedience. But today, and we're going to pick that theme up again here in the text that we're going to be looking at, but uh, there's an expanded uh, understanding of faith as well that the author gives us, and that's the connection between faith and victory. So faith and obedience, we'll look at that, and then also this new element of faith, faith and victory. I don't know what challenges or series of challenges you've had this week or perhaps this month or this year. Um, whatever it is that you've brought with you into the service uh, today. Um, Perhaps for some of you here, the main challenge that you're facing is this challenge of obedience. And you know the Lord's calling you to a path of obedience, and it's hard. It's going to be costly. You've been dragging your feet. Maybe it's a particular sin issue that you need to confess and give up. Maybe it's uh, not an issue of sin, but it's just some direction the Lord's calling you to go that you don't want to go. It's a price that you don't are not sure that you want to pay. Maybe obedience, the challenge of obedience, is your issue. Or perhaps <clears throat> this morning, uh, your challenge is not so much obedience, but it's it's having an attitude and an expectation of victory in your life. You're a you're a realist, a glass half empty sort of person you hedge your bets, you plan for the worst. Your life's motto is, you can't fail if you don't try. That's your life's motto. Maybe there is a hill you need to climb. Maybe there's a wall you need to scale. You're doubtful that you have the strength to make it, and you just aren't sure you want to put yourself out there and try. And so maybe that's your problem this morning, or the challenge for you is an expectation of God's victory and power in your life. So whether you're struggling to obey or whether you're struggling to lay hold of an attitude of victory and perhaps optimism, and this passage has a word about how faith both enables obedience and it also propels us forward into victory. So we're going to pick up where we left off uh, from last week with Pastor Johnny, Hebrews 11:23, 23, and uh, we're going to go through 35a. But Hebrews eleven twenty three through 27 is going to focus on how faith enables obedience, and then Hebrews eleven twenty eight 28 through 35a will focus on how faith propels us forward into victory. And with all my sermons, I try to make them equal opportunity for both Christians and non-Christians, so whatever your, your faith commitment is here this morning, uh, your... Um, Uh, your commitment to Christ or not. Uh, I would encourage you to listen uh, closely because I think God has a word for you in your situation this morning, regardless. All right. Picking up in verse 23 then, the first thing that we learn in this passage is that faith enables obedience. Verses 23 through 26, the author uses the example of Moses to clearly illustrate the inevitable and necessary relationship between faith and obedience. Now, the connection between faith and obedience should not be new to you if you've been with us throughout uh, the duration of the Hebrews sermon series. In fact, so much of what the author is trying to do throughout his epistle to the original audience was to make this connection between faith and obedience So this is going to be a bit of a review. It could be a bit of a review for you, but the author very clearly presses into this point again here, and it's a good reminder. I encourage you to recall uh, a number of weeks ago when we began chapter 11, right in the first verses of chapter 11, I made the point that faith is future-oriented. Faith looks not only back over our shoulder to the historical facts of the gospel, that Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, but faith also looks forward to God's future reward that he has promised. So faith looks back, but faith also looks forward. And really throughout Hebrews, I would say the author of Hebrews is probably more concerned to instill this idea of future-oriented faith. Confident in God's reward faith compels us to press forward in obedience even when obstacles stand in our way. And of course, that was the situation for the original audience of Hebrews, right, is that they had started out on the journey of faith and obedience was getting costly for them. They were receiving persecution from perhaps the fellow Jewish community, the uh, imperial powers of Rome. But in, in either case, it was becoming difficult to persevere in obedience. And so the author has stepped in and he's trying to instill them in obedience, the path of obedience, by by shoring up their faith in the future provision of God's reward. So the whole letter has been really to make this point. But Moses also is a good example of this principle that faith compels or encourages obedience. And the author uses the story of Moses to make this point. The author has been going out through chapter 11, highlighting kind of key high water marks throughout Israel's history, throughout the the history of the people of God. And he's made it now, going in chronological order, he's made it in verse 23 to Moses. So he tells us in verse 23 that by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. Now, maybe you know the story of the nation of Israel. Maybe uh, it's new to you. Let me just give a a brief reminder here, because otherwise you're like, why is it take faith to hide your baby for three months, right? Well, in in Moses's case, uh, uh, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, Abraham's family, was incubating, as it were, in the land of Egypt. They were being uh, safely housed there until they had grown up into a great people when the Lord would bring them out of the land of Egypt into the land of Canaan where God had promised that one day they would be. But while they were in the land of Egypt, they were growing so populous and they were increasing in power that the Egyptians began to become concerned about them. First, they tried oppressing them by making them slaves and that they still continued to expand and to grow. And so Pharaoh passed an edict, the king of Egypt passed an edict that all of the male babies that were born had to be exposed or executed. They had to be placed out into the wilderness to die. So when Moses is born, he's born in the midst of the heightened persecution that the nation of Egypt is now imposing upon Abraham's family, the Israelites. Well, Moses's parents did not expose Moses. They didn't have him executed, but rather they hid him away, we read, They ignored the anger of Pharaoh or the edict of Pharaoh and they hid him away and and they protected him. Well, Moses is eventually found three months later by none other than Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter, rather than bringing about the execution of this little Hebrew baby that she's found, she's smitten by him and so she takes him in and she adopts him and she raises him in her home. But, but Moses' parents had hid uh, Moses away from Pharaoh because they were afraid not that he would be adopted by Pharaoh, but that he would be killed by Pharaoh. They set aside their fear of Pharaoh and chose rather to fear God. once read somewhere, I don't recall where it came from, but I, I read somewhere that the fear of God is the one fear that drives out all other fear. The fear of God is the one fear that drives out all other fears, and that was the case with Moses' parents. Certainly, there would have been consequences for going against Pharaoh's edict, but they chose to ignore the fear of Pharaoh and instead to follow the path of obedience and fear of God. Well, Moses, as I mentioned, is eventually found by Pharaoh's daughter. He's adopted uh, into Pharaoh's household, and he's raised in Pharaoh's household, and as such, has all the opportunities that an adopted child of Pharaoh would have. So all the wealth, the prestige, the privilege, the honor. He has every opportunity that comes from being a child in Pharaoh's household. But verse 24 tells us that he intentionally threw it all away when he interceded on behalf of his people. So even though Pharaoh was living the life of luxury in the household of Uh, or Moses is living the life of luxury in the household of Pharaoh, and it's going good for Moses, the persecution of Moses' people is still continuing throughout the land. And Moses, at some point as an adult, becomes conflicted in his soul, and he sees an Egyptian slave uh, master oppressing one of his fellow Hebrews. And so Moses steps in and And in defending the fellow Hebrew, he ends up killing the Egyptian slave master. And this, of course, was a crime of murder, and it was really seen as insurrection against Pharaoh. And so Moses, in choosing to defend his people, to intercede on his people who were being oppressed, puts himself at odds with Pharaoh. And in putting himself at odds with Pharaoh, he walked away from all the treasures of Egypt. Look what the author says here in our passage about why Moses did this. Why did Moses intercede on behalf of his people? It wasn't just because it was the moral thing to do, right? I mean, there's more going on, the text tells us, than just a kind of commitment to bear morality or a commitment to social justice. He does it, the text tells us in verse 26, because he was looking to the reward it's interesting, isn't it? Moses was looking to the reward. And because, verse 27, he saw him who was invisible. So I kind of have this picture uh, in my mind, as it were, that like God brings Moses out in the midst of the persecution of all of his people, it's like a game show, right? You know, and God's like, behind door number one, Moses, are all the treasures of Egypt. It can all be yours. Just continue down the path you're going. Behind door number two, there's the reward, the treasure that I will give you for obedience. And Moses has a choice to make. Which path is he going to take? Which door is he going to go into? Door number one, with all the treasures and wealth of Egypt. Or door number two, the treasure, the wealth, the reward that God would give And so Moses, in faith, then receives or takes the the path of God's path into the reward. Moses was looking forward for the reward that he believed he would get from the invisible God, the reward that was better than all the visible wealth of Egypt. And that's where faith comes in. That's the the connection between faith and obedience. It takes faith to believe, that god's reward, which we can't see, which we cannot yet see, is better than the reward of sin which we can see. It takes faith to believe that god 's reward, which we can't see, is better, is better than the reward of sin which we can see. Moses was wise enough to understand that the pleasures of Egypt, look what it says here in verse 25 that the pleasures of of Egypt were fleeting, and right? Egypt was the great superpower in the Mediterranean world. It was, it was in, in you know, imperial majesty. We all even now know of the great pyramids, right? So I mean, it was a it was a massive nation with great power. But even in the height of its power, it was just fleeting. And Moses knew that Egypt and all of its wealth were just fleeting. Here today and gone tomorrow like mist. But God's reward is as eternal as God himself. Indeed, God himself is the reward that he gives us. One of my favorite church fathers is Augustine, and uh, here's a quote that he gives along these same lines. He says this, he says, For as... There is nothing greater or better He has promised us Himself. Think about like all that God offers us, right? All that He would give us. What does He have to give us that is better than Himself? There is nothing better to give us than Himself. And so in promising us the greatest possible reward that He can give, He gives us Himself faith in God's promised reward motivated Moses to choose the path of obedience. In the same way, faith in God's promised reward motivates us to choose the path of obedience. So here's my question for you, particularly if you were one of the folks that has been struggling with the issue of obedience. Where in your life is God calling you toward a path of Of obedience, even a hard, scary path of obedience? You know the answer to that question. I don't know the answer to that question. Maybe even those that are closest to you, though, don't even know the answer to that question. No one else really knows the path that God is calling you to walk, right? But it's a scary path. It's a hard path. Where in your life are you tempted to fear like Moses or Moses' parents, you're tempted to fear the anger or the approval, perhaps, of your fellow man to the point that it crowds out your longing for God's reward. Perhaps it's at school with your peers and you work hard to navigate those relationships and it's complex and you got to do certain things and be certain ways and dress certain ways or whatever it is to maintain your status with your peers. And you, you find that you, you, you fear the loss of approval from your friends more than you fear the loss of approval from God. And that misplaced fear is causing you, or that misplaced faith is causing you to choose the path of disobedience. Maybe it's at work with your boss. And you fear his opinion or her opinion of you more than you fear God's opinion of you. Maybe it's a spouse or a family member. God is asking you to prioritize him as your greatest reward. And you know that if you do it, not just like intellectually do it, but if you live out that reality of prioritizing God, it's going to cost you probably going to cost you relationally with somebody. Do you fear God more? Do you long for his reward the most? If it's a relational fear that is keeping you from choosing the path of obedience, think about Moses and his parents who had the the weight of Pharaoh and all that he represented against them, and they chose instead the path of obedience in the face of fearing Moses instead or Pharaoh instead. Or where in your life does the path towards obedience feel like the path of death? Like you're being asked to give up something precious to you that the Lord is calling you to follow him down into the shadowed valley. And you'd much rather stay up on the plain, the sunlit with the blue sky and the green grass. But the Lord is saying, no, I've got a place I want you to go. You got to follow me. Follow my son, your shepherd, right? And it's going to be down into the shadowed valley. And you're like, that looks a lot like death. In fact, I think there's a psalm about that, the shadowed valley of death. I don't want to go that way, right? But the Lord is calling you into this place that to follow into it feels like death. Perhaps it's not just the path, but it's asking, he's asking you to give up something that is dear to your own self, as dear as your own self. Like perhaps all the treasures of Egypt that Moses had to give up. Maybe the path of obedience is a path of death. Death to sin, death to self, death to fleeting pleasures. But you remember that Jesus, so many times when he was describing the way of salvation and how we accessed it, he said that those who want to find their life must be willing to lose them. Those who want to gain their lives must be willing to die. Salvation cannot be found except down the path of death. Do you believe, and here's the question, this is facing you. Do you believe that obedience to God is worth it? That's the big question. If you're on that threshold of the decision of obedience, and you're saying, should I or shouldn't I? Do I follow God? Do I follow the world? What's the way to go? Here's the question you need to answer. Do you believe that obedience to God is worth it? Is there a reward for? For your obedience at the end of that path of obedience do you believe that there is a reward that there is life that there is god himself at the end of the path of obedience because there is i promise you i can't tell you exactly how it's all going to work out i don't know all the details of how your story will unfold if you follow jesus down into the shadowed valley I could tell you how it worked out for Jesus, worked out for him with a cross. But every cross, when it is a cross embraced by faith, has a resurrection waiting on the other side of it. So follow Jesus and his example of obedience down into the shadowed valley of the cross and up and out the other side into resurrection. Don't give way to fear. Don't be afraid to give up earthly treasure. Don't lose hope in God's reward. How much better to follow Moses' path of faith, to choose the reproach of Christ and his people over all the wealth of this world and the fleeting pleasures of sin. So let's keep our eyes on him who is invisible, confident that he is worth whatever price we might have to pay. So faith enables obedience as we look forward to God's reward. Faith also, though, as the author continues on in this passage, faith also propels us to victory in the here and the now. The focus of our sermon series has been all about persevering in the present while looking forward to God's future reward. That's been the focus of so much of what we've been talking about. It's been the focus of chapter 11, that God has promised this land of rest, this future reward, this great high priest that waits for us at the end of the road, right? And we believe that in faith, and so we persevere in the present through the difficulties seeking this reward that is to come, this city that is to come, as the author talks about earlier in Hebrews 11. But all of this focus on the future reward of faith might lead us to the wrong conclusion that the reward of faith, the victory of faith, only comes to us in the far distant future after death. There's a term that theologians uh, bat around uh, when they're talking about uh, this future reward. We'll use this term eschatology, which speaks of the end times and this eschatological reward. And there's this expression called realized eschatology. And realized eschatology is the idea that this future reward is realized in the present. So the appropriate way to think about salvation is realized eschatology. Eschatology, the future reward in the end times, is realized in the present. But that's the middle of the road. But there are two other ditches. There are two ditches that you can fall into off of realized eschatology. You're all going to be great theologians by the time we're done. You can impress all your friends. The one ditch that you can fall into is over-realized eschatology. Right, an over realized eschatology is the idea that all of the future reward has been given to us in the present. So everything that we're going to get in the future, or 90% of what we're going to get in the future, has been brought into the present and we can experience it in the here and the now. That's over realized eschatology. And it's over realized because the reality is all of God's redemptive work, not all, but the majority of what God's redemptive work is going to be, is going to be in the future. Right? It's not just Christ's first coming but it's Christ's second coming. So we don't want to be over-realized in our eschatology. But that's not the ditch I'm worried about us falling into today. The ditch that I'm worried about us falling into is under-realized eschatology. And under-realized eschatology is the opposite of over-realized eschatology. Under-realized eschatology is the idea that all this stuff that God's going to do in the future, none of that or very just teeny tiny bits of it are being brought into the present. And so we undersell or underexpect the reality of God's final power to be present here in the or to be present with us here in this moment. And we have underrealized eschatology. So like Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh, we figure the best that we can do is just kind of mope our way through life, foregoing the riches of this world embracing the reproach of Christ, trusting forlornly in some post-mortem reward. And that's our life. It's not that we've given up a belief in the future reward. We believe in the future reward. But, you know, we're just going to have to wait till then to get it. And in the present, it's just all crosses and cruces of fictions and sickness and death and dying and obedience. And that's all we've got right? And so we mope our way through life like Eeyore. A post-mortem reward, of course, is better than no reward at all. But thankfully, God's future eschatological reward sneaks into the present and we can experience it even now. So look back at our text because the author isn't interested in just putting the reward of faith all the way into the future. He makes this turn right in and around Verse 28 starts following the example of Moses. Look what he's, he's, he's following the example of Moses, and he starts talking about how faith has motivated the people of God not only to be obedient and to step out in obedience, but how it has brought about great victories. So, by faith, verse 28 Moses led the people of, out of Israel out of Egyptian slavery. Moses, by faith, brought the people their freedom from their captivity. By faith, Moses enabled the people, or the people were enabled by faith, to cross through the Red Sea miraculously. The waters parting on either side, the people going through, Pharaoh's army being drowned uh, in arrears. By faith, Rahab gained her life and did not perish with the rest of Jericho. When the people of Israel made it through the Red Sea, they made it through the wilderness after 40 years. We leave that part out. But they get to the land of Canaan, and the first city they come to is Jericho. And this is going to be the first fight that they're going to have in the land of Canaan. And there's this prostitute, Rahab, who peering out over the wall, because her house is on the wall, she sees the army of Israel amassed. And she has a choice to make, just like Moses had a choice to make. She could align herself with Jericho and the safety of Jericho's walls. Or she could align herself with the God of Israel, who is outside the walls. And Rahab aligns herself with the God of Israel. And so she gives passage, a secret passage, to the spies. And she, she in faith, aligns herself, takes action uh, and aligns herself with Israel and saves her own life and the life of her people. And then uh, the author begins in verse 32 to list the victorious judges as the people came into the land and began to settle and to spread out. God appointed judges who brought victory. Uh, for the people, Gideon, amazing victory. Barak, Samson, Jephthah, Samuel, goes on through, even to David, the first great king, and the prophets. And then look here in verse 33 through 35. All these people who, through faith, listen to what they did by faith, not just obeyed, look what they did. They conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women even received back their dead by resurrection. And if you know the story of the Old Testament well enough, you can read all those and you can be like, oh, that's when that happened. Oh, that's when that happened. I remember when that happened. All these things happened throughout Israel's history, right? And so we have Here, the author assuring us that not only does faith enable victory or obedience, but faith also enables victory. It doesn't just enable us to persevere, but it propels us forward into victory. We don't need to wait until we die to experience all of God's victorious power. But how is it that faith unlocks the door to victory? What is the connection between faith and victory? We've been exploring all throughout the letter the connection between faith and obedience. If I believe that there is a reward at the end of this path or at the end of obedience, then I choose obedience to get the reward, to get God himself, right? So then I, we can see the connection between faith and obedience and reward. But what's the connection between faith and victory? The author doesn't really explain in this passage how faith secures victory. He just asserts the fact of it. He just goes from talking about faith enabling obedience to faith securing victory. So let me see if I can shed a little bit of light on this connection between faith and victory by drawing from two other scriptural themes uh, that we find uh, all, throughout, uh, this, all throughout really the whole Bible, in fact. The first theme can be found in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 25 and following, but really the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul tells us that God, by his great power, will in the last day bring all things he has made into perfect submission to his will. So God, in the end, at the last day, in the eschaton, eschatologically, right? He's going to bring all things that he has made into perfect subjection or submission to his will. The world is not now as it should be. It was too hot last week, for example, right? The world isn't exactly as it should be, right? But one day it will be as God intends it to be. As I just noted, God himself is the great reward of the Christian. There is nothing better he can give us than himself, and so he gives us himself as the reward. But that doesn't mean that all of creation and all that he has made, this world, everything that he's created, will one day just evaporate so that only God and your soul will be left in heaven. And that eternity will be a disembodied existence floating in heaven in beautiful, soothing light, beholding the infinite glory of God, listening to angels play harps. And that's all that there's going to be. That's kind of a popular misconception or a you know, comic book depiction of what heaven is, right? Is that our, our souls float beyond the world. The world just kind of disappears and it's just us in some blinding, beautiful light where we dwell in God's presence and just bask forever, experiencing only him and everything else fades away and angels playing harps. You always have to have the angels playing harps. I don't know why. Uh, But rather, that's not the Bible's vision of what the eschaton will be. Rather, the gospel promise is that God will renew all that he has made and bring everything, us and the whole world, everything that he has made into perfect subjection to himself. God, through the power of Jesus, will one day bring all things into wonderful alignment with himself. So just like an engine that is finally made where the, where the, the pistons are going up and down, and they're, they're timed just right with the valves, and everything is working just right. Like, but we, sometimes though, when those get out of sync, we get a lot of knocking and banging, and, and the engine still works, but it just doesn't work as efficiently or as right as it should. We feel that in our own lives, right? That we work, there's some good things we can do, there's some beauty that we can bring into the world, there's some beautiful things in the world, but there's just a lot of pistons knocking into valves that shouldn't be happening. This world isn't all that it should be. But God, one day, is going to bring everything into alignment with himself. It's going to be timed Perfectly. We will finally be who we were truly created to be. We will, in fact, be more ourselves then, in that day, than we are now. The true us is still waiting to emerge. And the world, in the same way, will be what it was truly created to be, with everything working as God intended, so that the whole universe... What we now know and what we haven't even discovered yet, our bodies, our wills, our world, our relationships, everything that God has made will be perfectly tuned to perfectly reveal the unending, all-satisfying glory of God. At present, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that we, we, we look at God through the looking glass of creation, but the looking glass of creation is dirty, so we don't, it obscures our vision of God. We can't see God as we uh, were intended to. But a day is coming when the looking glass of creation will be redeemed and will be crystal clear and it will be an accurate and clear reflection and refraction of the multifaceted glory of God. So that when we look in this world and all that God has made, we will see in this world and through this world and beyond this world to God Himself and to his glory. So that's the first thing we need theme we need to keep in mind in order to understand the connection between faith and victory. Right? So that there is this great victory that God is going to win when He's going to bring all the world and ourselves into subjection to Himself and release us to be who God intended us to be all along. But that's all in the future. Right? And so much of what we've been talking about is that vision. And so it's important that we add to that vision this second theme. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 that what we have now in salvation is like a deposit or a down payment of what is guaranteed to come at that last day. So that redemptive, redeeming work of God that is going to happen at the last day Paul tells us we possess that already currently through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in deposit or down payment form. God doesn't just save it all up for us at the end. He doesn't take all of his reward and all of his promises and make them only future-oriented. The majority of God's deliverance and power is indeed revealed to us in the last day. But even now we can experience the creation subjecting, body resurrecting, world perfecting, soul delivering, relationship healing, victorious power of God for this life in the present, today, even now. God's redemptive power to restore the world and ourselves is given to us in nascent form in the here and now through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. When we come to God in faith, we receive the gift of salvation. The gift of salvation isn't just, I forgive you, good luck, I'll see you in heaven. The gift of salvation is, I forgive you, and I'm going to begin even now involving you in my redemptive power to restore you and the world back into what I intended to be all along. So we step into God's redemptive work in faith. Faith, then, not only believes that God has a reward waiting for us in the future, But faith also believes that God is living and active in the present, working even now to bring about the world of the future in our world and in our lives. Faith in the present reality of God's last day power is the key to experiencing that power in the present. Let me say that again. Faith in the present reality of God's last day power is the key to experiencing that power in the present. When we believe that God's power is even now living and active in our lives, we are motivated to step out with confident expectation of experiencing the reality of that power. But if all we believe is that God's redemptive power is only available to us in the last day, then we won't be motivated to step out in confident expectation. Going back to another story from the nation of Israel, when they had defeated Jericho and they were about to move more deeply into the land, they had to cross the Jordan River. The Jordan River at this particular time of history was at its flood stage. It would flood annually, and it was at its flood stage. And it wasn't going to be easy to get this huge horde of people across the flooded Jordan River. And so the Lord called the priests and he had the priests take the Ark of the Covenant, the, the place where God's, uh, the artifact that, that uh, revealed God's mercy to people. And he had the priests take the Ark of the Covenant and he told them to walk out into the Jordan River. And as the priests in obedience laid hold of the Ark of the Covenant and stepped out into the Jordan River, the text tells us that when their feet touched the water, the waters began to part. And in fact, God took the water and he piled it up at this place, this city called Adam, which was much further upriver. Hate to be living in that town at that time, but that's where all the water piled up, right? But God separated the water and the people passed on dry ground. But it's instructive to us that God did not part the water before the priests walked into it. Now, you can think back to when they crossed the Red Sea. God separated the Red Sea, and then they walked through it. But when they got to the Jordan River, God didn't separate the Jordan River or pile all the water up and then make them walk through. He said, walk through it first. And as they walked through it in obedience, confident, counting on God's power to intervene in that moment, God separated the water. The waters didn't part until their feet got wet. And I think it's so much like that in our lives. We would much prefer to cross bodies of water like the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, right? Let God just sort that all out. We'll sit back in safety, and then we'll go through miraculously. And I think God does that for us sometimes, just like he did it for the nation of Israel, early in our lives to to get us kind of situated in our heads that he does that thing. He can do that. He has the capacity for that. But he wants us to step out in faith, He wants us to enter into the waters while they're still at flood stage, while they're still raging, confident that He can, in the midst of that obedience, deliver us. When we believe that God's last day power is present even now, then we are motivated to step out in confidence and are swept up into His redemptive activity. And it's the truth. I don't know what the situation is that you're facing in life that maybe the Lord's been pressing upon you, right? And by His Spirit, He's been saying, this is the path I want you to go. And you're like, but have you seen the floodwaters? Have you seen the height of that wall? Have you seen the size of those armies? Like, if you clear all those things out, Lord, then I'm going to go. And God's like, no, just start going in obedience. And as you step forward in confident expectation, about my power to be with you, I will clean this stuff out for you. And I don't know what that is for your life, but maybe you do. Maybe that's a specific word for someone here this morning. Where have you settled or attempted to settle for a future-only reward, neglecting to lay hold of the present deposit? In what areas of your life are you moping around like Eeyore, covering yourself in the warm blanket of not trying and not failing? Because it's safer that way, right? It's the warm blanket of underrealized eschatology where you can't ever be disappointed because you've never tried. And God is calling you out of that place, out of your underrealized eschatology, into a place of faith and confident expectation that he can work miracles even now in your life. Where have you been moping around like Eeyore when you could be winning like Gideon and the judges of old? Perhaps you've had some hard setbacks in your life. I know many of you have had some very hard setbacks. A failed marriage, a wayward child, debilitating sickness, an unexpected job loss. And the pain of those circumstances has contracted your faith and limited your expectation of God's reward and moved it solely to the distant horizon of the future. The pain of those circumstances hasn't caused you to give up belief in God or to give up belief in his reward. You still believe in God. You still believe he's got a reward there at the end of life. But you've lost the capacity to believe that God, that power at the end can be brought forward into the present and can work and can do miracles even here and now. You've seen it in other people's lives. You've heard testimonies. But you've lost that faith in your own life. I understand that. And it's certainly true that God doesn't deliver us from every trial. Right, perhaps you perhaps you jumped over into the ditch of over-realized eschatology, had unrealistic expectations about what God was going to do. It didn't work out, and you've retreated not back to realized eschatology, but all the way back to under-realized eschatology. That's a pattern that can happen for many of us. And the Lord is calling you not to just keep going from ditch to ditch to ditch to ditch, right, but to find that that middle way, the way of wisdom where you're being led by the Spirit of God out into places of faithful victory. It is true that God doesn't deliver us from every trial. And Jesus' death reminds us that suffering and defeat is part of this life. But don't forget that Jesus experienced lots of God's last day power before he was killed on the cross. When we read the gospel narratives, there is so much resurrection power of God that is already on display in Jesus' life long before he's ever raised from the dead. He's healing sick. He's driving out demons. He's he's preaching. People are coming to faith in him. There's there's an unleashing of God's Holy Spirit resurrection power in Jesus' life. And then he's killed according to God's plan, and then the full onslaught of God's power comes and raises him from the dead. The big payout was at the end of Jesus' life, but God's power was working and active all throughout his life. Don't let suffering and defeat dampen your faith for what God can do and is willing to do in your life in the present. Don't be afraid to step out in faith with confidence that God is even now working, working even here in our church and has been working if we have eyes to see it. Marriages are being restored in our midst, patterns of sin being broken, relationships being renewed, sickness being healed, finances sorted out, hope reborn, lives being redeemed. Some of you this morning have set your sights too low. You've contented yourself with an end-time only idea of God's reward. What active step of faith into God's future glory is he asking you to take in the present with present-day expectations of seeing, as the psalmist declares, the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Not just the goodness of the Lord and the great by and by, but the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Do you believe that that is still the reality of God's promise in your life? I don't know what circumstance you're facing where that's a particular word for you. Maybe it's a whole orientation of your life. You're just like I said earlier, a glass half full, low expectation, can't be disappointed if you don't hope sort of person. And it's easier just to take all of your expectations, shove them to the future and have none for the present. And maybe that whole fundamental orientation needs to be shaken up with the unleashing of that last day power in your life in the present. Maybe you have some relationships that really could use some victorious power of God here in the present. Maybe there's a health crisis. Maybe there's a work crisis. I don't know what it might be. But whatever it is that you've been tempted to try to sort out on your own or give up on, but whatever your option has been, it hasn't been to look to God's power. Maybe God is calling you this morning to start looking to His power, to start stepping out in faith and in confidence not making him part the waters before you start moving in obedient expectation of his power, but but to move out already into those troubled waters confident that he will be with you and he will guide you. I don't know what that situation is for you, but as you open yourself up to what the Spirit would speak to you, I'm sure the Spirit will make that evident to you this morning. So faith enables us in obedience as we look confidently to God's future reward But faith propels us forward to victory because God's future reward isn't only future. It's also here in the present, and we can experience it here and now. Amen? God, thank you that you have given us the expectation of a great future reward that allows us to persevere when things get hard here in the present. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on that unseen reward uh, as Moses and his parents did. Lord, I pray, though, that you would help us to not just content ourselves with only a future reward, but that we would live into the fullness of all that the author talks about in Hebrews 11, the unleashing of that future reward here in the present through the power of your Holy Spirit. God, help us to not just be content, to wait until the end to see your power involved in our lives, but we want to see it even here and now. So God, pray that you would give us steps of faith to take that would open us up to receiving your power in our lives in fresh, redemptive ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.